But we, so right now, preaching-wise, we are in a sermon series in the Gospel of John. We're going to take a break from that for three weeks to, to talk about our vision and values, which we usually like to do in September. We don't always do this, um, but it's usually an annual rhythm of ours because a lot of people are new, uh, maybe over the summer or in the fall. And so uh, today uh, we are starting a series called Hiawatha's Story in Three Verses, which is kind of our attempt to find three singular Bible verses uh, in, in the Bible and um, that, that, that I think especially express our beliefs or express our way of doing things or our values and also a lot of our history, um, and which actually turned out to be, this, this is a, an idea I had a few months ago. I thought, this will be a great idea, but the second I started thinking about it and getting input from our staff and overseers, I thought, this is, it's like too big, you know, for three, it's like we could, we could probably go for 52 weeks, but the sermon series called Hiawatha's Story in 52 Verses does not quite have the same rhythm to or, or ring to it. So um, it's going to be three verses. We'll cheat a little bit along the way um, by adding a few verses in that kind of sprinkle the ones we start with, but I think we did find um, three that really do encapsulate uh, a lot about us. So I, I hope it's helpful for you all. Uh, the goals here are simply that, uh, clarity. Uh, I think a goal would be alignment, uh, whether you've been here for 16 years or this is your first day. Uh, I hope it's aligning because we are very different people. Most churches that preach the gospel and, um, you know, that are, I guess, bigger than a couple of people maybe or something, I don't know, uh, are pretty diverse. And so uh, we are that as well, and even sometimes with doctrine, and so minor doctrines. And so we want uh, to, take it, to take time to um, really go back to what really gets us out of bed and excites us uh, with, uh, as, as a people and realign us along the same path. Um, and even if you're not a Christian yet and you're here, we hope this is a time where you're hearing what basically makes a person a Christian and what the church kind of really just is at the end of the day. So... Um, so hope that it's clear, hope that it's aligning, hope that it's recentering on the gospel and our particular vision as a church, especially if, like I said before, um, if you are new or new-ish, whatever that means for you. In fact, just kind of as an aside before we get into this, um, this kind of relates, maybe kind of doesn't, um, but I wanted to start the series by saying um, this is probably our first normal fall in three years, you know? Like, I don't know if you guys feel that personally in life, but I think, like, as a church, for us in leadership, we're kind of coming in. I think a month ago, we had a staff meeting, and we kind of felt like we're really excited for the fall. Not that we weren't the previous two years, but it was just heavy, and we didn't have the same level of excitement because of COVID stuff and separation and all that. So, um, but this, this feels like our first normal fall in three years. Lots has changed. Lots has stayed the same. Uh, but many of you didn't even know Hiawatha pre-COVID, and... Um, and so what I, what I want to say to you, especially if you started to attend this church in the past couple of years, is um, today, right now, like as a church coming out of COVID, you all are the 22 iteration of Hiawatha Church. Like you are. Uh, there is no, there's no pre-COVID remnant of Hiawathaites that are still out there getting ready to return. Um, you know, and so if you would all consider this home, I know some of you don't yet, and that's fine. So this isn't quite for you. But if you, even if you're newish and do, or in the process of considering this home, my encouragement for you is that you are Hiawatha Church, and to consider thinking in those terms a bit more than thinking of yourself as an outsider or someone kind of watching, you know, from the outside and kind of expecting that kind of whatever that is, that you know, pre-COVID Hiawatha group that all know each other. They're just going to kind of keep doing things and all watch. Um, 
just encourage you to maybe just start to think a little bit differently. If you haven't, maybe you already have, but if you haven't already, to start to think about this as, as your home and, and as your church. And there's a lot of ways that that can manifest. You know, that's not just a ploy for more kids ministry volunteers, although we do need that help. That's not, that's not what this is. Um, it, it's, it's, this could look a hundred different ways. And so if you want help thinking about stuff like that, like what is the church and what does it mean to just have normal Christian rhythms, uh, community-wise and otherwise, throughout your, your week. Uh, we, would, we would love to talk to you about that. Um, not just us as pastors, but ministry leaders as well here, or maybe you have a friend who invited you. Um, please don't hesitate to do that. That's actually part of our job, and not just like, it's our job. Like, we love doing that. So uh, please, we'd love to buy a cup of coffee and, and talk more about our community. Um, so I guess that kind of does relate to this series in a, in a way, in the sense that you'll hear more about who we are. Uh, but maybe take our class on the 24th, if you haven't already, or if it's been 10 years and you want a refresher, because a few things have, uh, have changed. Um, not big things. Um, but a few things have changed in the class, in case you're wondering, what have they started to believe now? Um, all right, but without, so I'm going to bracket all that to the side, uh, but I just want to encourage you with that, and um, especially if you're brand new, but also to, to be... Um, have your antennas up here a little bit for some things that, that you'll learn maybe about our church these next few weeks. So, without further ado, though, um, the first verse in our series is from the book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 13. It says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. All right, so a little bit of context to this. Uh, Acts 4 takes place not long after Jesus rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and sent the Holy Spirit to fill the disciples and others, who were essentially the first Christians. And the first thing they start doing is preaching the gospel. Uh, Acts 4 is one of those instances. Peter and John were, um, were talking to some of the high priests and religious rulers of the Jews who had arrested them for preaching the resurrection of the dead and for healing a cripple which took place in Acts 3. After which, we have this helpful commentary from Luke, the author here, who wrote Acts, in verse 13, on what they thought when they heard Peter and John's defense, which wasn't really a defense, it was just more preaching. And it's interesting that it doesn't say that they were persuaded by them, at least yet, but they were taken aback. Like, how could common, uneducated fishermen just speak so boldly and articulately But then they remembered, this last part, but then they remembered that they had been with Jesus. And maybe for some of them, things started to click. All right? So what I want to do, um, or today what we're going to do, but also next week and the following, is outline these sermons with kind of three main categories. We're going to read a verse, um, like today's is Acts 4, and we're going to say, how does this verse kind of inform our story, speak to our history? How does this verse uh, speak to some of our values as a church, these drums we keep beating, these ways of doing things that we keep doing? And then how does it speak to our theology, which is just our chance to preach the passage as though we are just like in a series in the book of Acts. And so these are still sermons. They're not, I just don't want to do like a TED talk for you guys. So this is, there's going to be some of that, but this is a sermon. So we're going to preach Acts 4.13 in context, mostly on its own, but in context as well, um, and let God speak to us through Acts 4. As we do that, though, depends on where you're from and where your church background is, or if you're not, if you have maybe never been to a church, um, there might be some things that sort of are a little bit new in some emphases we have theologically or uh, stuff like that. So it still will have kind of that spirit of 
learning about our church um, in that third section as well. All right? So here we go. Let's dive in. Today's sermon is called Simple People from Acts 4.13. We'll start with the history side. Um, and the reason why we wanted to start with this verse is, is in a lot of ways it speaks to our story and our origins as a church as well. Uh, many of you know we are a 16-year-old church. She's had her 16th birthday uh, last week. Uh, another church sent us out to start a new one. We call that church planting. If you've never heard that before, that's what that means. It's a church sends people out usually with money and coaching and encouragement uh, to start a new church, maybe in a different part of their city or even a different state or part of the world. Um, and we were a team. Uh, we called it a launch team. Uh, some of you are in the room. were on that team 16 years ago. Um, but it was a team that was designed to have an expiration date. It was uh, a team that was meant to exist for about six to eight months to launch the church, hence the word. But then after a few months of meeting and gathering, we would let that team dissolve and form into new pastoral teams and staff teams and deacon teams and, uh, and so forth. Uh, but it wasn't just me and Aletha and our two-week-old daughter, Jane. Now she's 16 here. Uh, but it was uh, many of us. It was... Um, it was a team. So this verse reminds uh, me, this verse in Acts reminds me of the early days in how Peter and John are described here. Uh, we were a varied bunch. We were common, ordinary. You know, some of us had degrees, some didn't. Uh, before I got my master's in divinity, I was a production artist at a graphic design company um, making nothing, uh, but it was sort of fun. But <clears throat> we... we um, had school teachers, we had scientists, we had stay-at-home moms, we had UPS drivers, government employees, real estate agents, and college students who made up our launch team and helped us plant. And it was, looking back, it was a true moving of the Spirit. And um, I said first service too, I, I just remember like just being happy a lot uh, with each other, and it was so fun. And, um, but if people were like to look at the team, it would be hard to know who to really look at because we were all just so vanilla. Um, and, and part of our story is that we inherited this building from a dying church wanting to give it to a new, younger church plant, which was incredibly generous. Isn't that cool uh, when a church thinks that way? Um, they, they could see the end in sight. They had been around for probably 80 years. It was called Minnehaha Baptist, and they just wanted to, to give it away. It wasn't quite that simple because our denomination sort of reacquires property whenever churches fold, but our denomination played a big role in that too, and it wasn't free, but it was a very, very cheap building for a church plant that gave us, um, you know, we, we, were given, we were given from our ascending church some money, but we hardly had anything, and so we could afford it, and so it was really cool. So we own the space now, which I don't know if you knew that, but we actually own this building, which is crazy for a church our age. Um, but I'm, I'm, I, I share this to say that we need to do a lot of updates as well with the space. Uh, it just didn't all get done, though. The carpet wasn't all installed. We had pulled out the fire engine red shag carpet and started to put carpet in but didn't finish. Our projection system wasn't fully up yet, so we had kind of a makeshift thing here. Um, and it was, it was pretty duct, duct tape. But it was a metaphor, I think, for us as, as the people who were starting the church. We were all very duct tape. We were unfinished. We were rough around the edges. And by all outside standards and worldly standards, we just weren't that great. Um, but we really did care, um, or sorry, we didn't care about those things because we had a great gospel that we preached unapologetically and we sang about excitedly and we loved each other, we shared the gospel with each other fervently and, and we, had, we had that love. And so um, 
going back to what I was saying before, that's really what I remember is I just remember like not thinking about all that stuff and I feel like today I might care more, you know? It's almost like I've gotten like less mature maybe. I don't know. But like in that day, God just kind of blinded, I think, all of us to like how just crazily duct tape it was, and, but we had the most important thing. Um, another sister verse to Acts 4 would be 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 27, where it says, Brothers and sisters, this is speaking to a church in the first century in the city of Corinth. Paul says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. So think of who you were when you were saved, when you became Christians. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Uh, If you didn't know, this is a very common description of churches in the New Testament. And it's never changed ever since the past 2,000 years. He's kind of like saying, look around, church. Remember who you were. And he's not insulting them. He's just saying, you guys weren't that great. Like, I love you, but you were all pretty normal and blue-collar and common, and uh, you weren't splashy. And that's actually by God's design. God isn't saving the strong sometimes. He doesn't save the smartest. He doesn't save those, to show that it's him who's saving. It's not, if churches were, were saved entirely by the smartest, it would, it would send all the wrong messages about Christianity, all the wrong messages And so in God's wisdom, he does save the intelligent, but a lot of times he doesn't. He saves the unintelligent or the simple. A lot of times he does save the uncommon, but it's mostly the common. And so um, we have these descriptors to underscore this idea of of commonality and how that that fits with grace. More on that later. Um, On a personal note, um, I really don't like talking about myself, so I'm not going to say a lot here, but I did want to say a little secret about me is I'm not actually a natural optimist. Um, like people think I am, or I should be because I'm a leader, but I'm not. And, but when, when it came to this church, um, I think God just blinded me to the risks, you know, like, uh, and made me really optimistic about it all and has ever since, even though it goes against the grain of how I normally think. And so that's kind of one of those, Chris is an empty vessel being filled, like we all are, you know, kind of ideas, um, is what, which is why I'm sharing this. But also, I had to overcome a lot of insecurity between being young and not feeling like I fit the mold for being a church planner, that was mostly my immaturity, not a message I was getting, but just, um, but I was, yeah, I just didn't feel like I was, I fit, and so I had to come, I had to kind of get over that. But again, verses like Acts 4.13 for me personally were very motivational, and they were very helpful. They, they reminded me about God's grace and how it's not us who become a type of person God can use, quite the opposite. It's, it's about owning our weaknesses and limitations. And even understanding that a sin-free life is not necessary for God to use us or no one would ever be used, uh, which is not licensed to sin, but a balm for people who do sin, which is all of us, and a balm for people who feel inadequate, and a balm for people who feel unworthy, people like me. All right, so that's a few things on our story. Again, it's, this is really like hard for me to think about what to share, what not to share. I hope that's... Um, sort of helpful or interesting at least. Most of you have not heard some of that stuff. And so um, if you want to know more, though, I'd love to buy a cup of coffee and I'll talk your off for a couple hours. Um, but that's a few things on our history. Our values, uh, this section's a bit more on the drums we beat. Um, churches sometimes have a, a category of who they are called philosophy of ministry. If you ever hear that term, we use it here too. Um, that's what values are basically. So why we do things the way we do why our kids' ministry looks the way it does, or our Sunday mornings go as long as they do, why we centralize preaching and communion, um, 
I guess those are kind of big, almost standard things, but those kinds of things might fit still in um, that kind of category. Why we're apolitical, um, why we're less programmed as a church, those kind of things would fit in this category. I said apolitical too. Did you guys hear that? Okay. I, I, I just want to make sure you're hearing that and not, did he say we're political? Um, we're non, non-political. All right. In case, in case that, was, that was not heard. Okay. So, um, a couple things on this. So, Acts 4.13, again, it's reflect, reflective of our story, but these ideas also became values of ours as well in the present, ongoingly, in that we wanted to be an ordinary church under the radar, where people didn't really see us, but instead saw the Jesus we spend time with. Um, one of our core values is glorifying God and making much of Him. Right underneath that value is a subvalue of it's not about us. We value being a non-pretentious church as much as we can. We value not taking ourselves that seriously. We value self-deprecating humor and things like team leadership. So it's not just about one person. So our church polity is a team of pastors and a diverse, robust staff team uh, lead and run the church, not just, um, not just one person. And some churches don't have that luxury, so I'm not... When I say this stuff, I'm, not, I'm just trying to help you understand our like, way of thinking. Um, don't hear a, you know, Hiawatha thinks they have the one right way to do church. Not saying that. We believe in the diversity of Jesus' bride, all right, just to be clear. So um, no judgment on churches that do things different. But we have thought this through. And so we're just trying to kind of give you a, a glimpse into the, you know, scatter, the scatter, scatterness of our brain sometimes when it comes to these things. But, um, but we value those types of things. We value team leadership. And also things like prayer, so that we are a dependent people on God, not trying to manufacture success on our own, and certainly not taking credit for the things that do go well. Okay, so though all those things could almost be their own sermons. I'm just giving you like a list of things that we talk about, we value, we celebrate as a church that flow from this verse, that, that, that fit categorically under Hiawatha's values, um, some of which many of you have heard, but some of you probably haven't. Another value, though, we have is, um, and this is, I just wrote this out t- for today because it sounds Acts 4.13-y. Um, and so this isn't written down anywhere else, but a, a value we would say we have is we, we value boldness and courage that comes from being loved and from no fear of death, mixed with a desire to evangelize a lost culture that's hostile to Christianity. So, Again, a very Acts 4 type setting, um, Acts is history, it really happened, um, all that stuff. But a very Acts 4 type thing as we think about, think about our day. And things are very different today too. Like I, along those lines, 16 years ago, culture was very different, you know. Um, I think there's some truth to the idea that to whatever degree culture was neutral towards Christianity, now there's a bit more antagonism uh, towards it. Um, Again, that's a very broad statement, so don't ask me to get more specific because I don't know if I can. But I think there's some truth to that, at least looking nationally and, and, and even globally, but especially nationally, that that's in our culture, that's, that's the case. And so um, we just need to think about these things and, and how to shape the gospel, how to present it uh, to a culture that is that way. All right? Um, Relatedly, we have this put up on our website. Uh, We believe that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners like us. We believe that the tomb is empty, actually empty, not metaphorically, but actually. 
And because of that, we believe death is a defeated enemy. We believe our lives are not our own, that we belong to God and to a story much bigger than we could ever imagine. And we believe our need for Jesus far outweighs our need to become better versions of ourselves because apart from him, we can do nothing. So this starts to delve into our beliefs a little bit, but philosophically, it represents the kind of culture we want to have here. A culture where we're not that great, but God is. And although we are empty and broken vessels, we worship a God who fills empty things, a la 2 Corinthians 4 in context. We'd even be so bold as to say, though there might be exceptions to this, we'd be so bold as to say that these beliefs and values are probably going to be more attractive to non-Christians than visions that revolve more around self-help practices, changing the world, and the aimless call to do more and try harder. Um, A common church vision statement that you'll often hear is, love God, love people. But we don't think that's a really great vision for a couple of reasons. One, for theological reasons. It's a summation of the law, the Old Testament law, but it's not the gospel, nor is it the center of Christian spirituality. Uh, But also, too, it's not a great vision for the sake of reaching non-Christians. Making the center of your church do something good, uh, though maybe kind of good uh, in its own season, isn't distinctly Christian enough, nor is it warm. Uh, People usually bristle at being told what to do. But a vision that is objective, outside of us, and invitational and story-based and gospel-centered, focused more on what Jesus has done for us, has a, um, a much different flavor to it. So, Our vision, I don't have this on screen, uh, but uh, 1 John 4 talks, I think, more in New Testament terms about love where it says, this is what love is, not that you have loved God, but that he has loved you. And how did he love you? By sending his son to die in your place, to be a sacrifice of atonement, to make us favorable to God. Uh, That's what love is. And so, uh, and that's what actually wells up within us to, to create love in us. So the problem with love God, love people is it's never done. Like no one has ever done that perfectly. Um, the, 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 the problem with centralizing love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength is that have you ever with all of your heart, with every single bit of your body and your heart and your mind and your strength, love God? And the answer is absolutely not. None of you have. I mean, I, I'm sorry, but I'm not insulting you. I'm just saying I'm trying to free you. I haven't. I know that. Your pastor has never loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. This was a part of the law to imprison people under sin and make the problem of sin worse and lead ahead to the story where the new law, the new gospel, the new mediatorial truth is that we have not loved God, but he has loved us. He's died for our sins. And that's a one-way love. And it's understanding that and living in the wake of that, in the shadow of that, that actually is the thing that will work for change in our heart. That's how we'll start to reciprocate love is by knowing that we are first love on a much higher level that God never asks us to replicate, ever. Do fathers and mothers ask their kids to replicate their love perfectly or do they just love them? Is God called father accidentally? Of course not. Families, healthy families, exist for this purpose, to be shadows of the greater love that God has for us. And I think church communities can be this as well. We have unconditional love for each other. Um, 
in showing that, it wins love out of us. Like, like the woman who was forgiven much and then loved much, uh, it wins it out of us. And that's a, that's a big thing um, for us here as well. All right. I totally lost my place, but let's, maybe we should just move on. Um, the third category is high, so Hiawatha's theology. Now, um, I've kind of already started to talk about this a little bit, but Acts 4.13 speaks to our theology in that, first I'll say, that we love to emphasize how the Spirit of God often shows up in the low things, in the unsuspecting, and the surprises, and the left turns of life. Um, a big part of that has to do with our weakness as human beings. Uh, Jesus says this in the, in, to Paul the Apostle at one point. It, he says, Paul, my power is made perfect in weakness. Um, that, so that's a verse, I know for me, I'm going to encourage you guys in this as well. I know a lot of you know this verse. Um, but think about what he's saying here. My power is made perfect when you're at your weakest. That's when I really show up. That's when I'm present. I go to the depths not draw you up to the heights and wait for you there. I go down and I save people who are deep and low. It's when you're at your worst that I show up the most. It's when there's no hope. Like, you don't see any way out. That's when my strength is able to work the most. And, and, and then the flip is true as well. When we're strong, in one sense we can see that as a gift from God, and maybe there's, there's certainly some truth to that, but in, 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 in this vein, though, he's saying when we're strong in ourselves, that's when he's limited. It's, kind of, it's almost like when um, in Mark 2 where, where Jesus says, I only came for sick people, not the healthy. If you self-perceive as healthy, I did not come for you. Right? Or elsewhere in the Gospels where it says, I couldn't heal people because of your lack of faith. See, it's, like, it's almost like the trust, uh, the, the, the trust, the presence of faith out of our weakness is what, you know, Jesus is moving towards and being drawn to and working out of. It's his strength um, cooperating, not with your strength, cooperating with your weakness and what you don't bring that actually exemplifies the gospel all, all the more. All right? So, uh, and, and there's grace in that. So we'll talk more here about, you know, things like authenticity and humility than we do human potential. We're just not going to talk about human potential that much. Um, we're going to talk more about God coming down to us rather than us going up. And there, there's grace in that. David Zoll says, Much of our despair, I'm convinced, is fueled by a superficial view of human nature. That's just, that is to say, overly simplified, not complete, um, surfacy. This, this near default view flatters us with fantasies about our capacities and motivations, but fails to account for the actual data of our lives leaving us lonelier and more burned out as a result. I hear from so many people who feel burdened by the pressure to perform an ideal version of themselves. I feel it myself. Here's the thing. By editing out the less savory stuff about our human nature, we also snuff out solidarity, empathy, and vulnerability. We snuff out love, humor too. All of a sudden, we think we're the only one with problems, the only one barely hanging on, the only one who doesn't belong. Thank God the truth of who we are is much more comprehensive. Okay, so basically he's saying this is like what a church culture should be like. This is how we should think about our anthropology, our, our view of the self, our view of humanity. Uh, is it's low. Uh, it's, um, it, it's less about 
you know, the, the upward slope and going up, but more about this, this limited, like, firm, concrete ceiling that we can't get past, but God can break through. I like how he links uh, humor here with a low view of human nature as well. And I think that's very true um, with common sense, also with Bible in hand, but also by experience, I would say this is true for me, that laughter is a sign of a grace-centered culture. Laughter in joy over God's love, but also laughter at ourselves and at our foibles, like self-deprecating humor. Um, and usually the opposite is true as well, like a stuffy, heavy church culture that can't laugh usually takes themselves too seriously and are too focused on good behavior versus God's grace. Um, so statements like, uh, if you guys ever heard the statements, um, God loves you just as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way? You guys ever heard that before? Some of you? Okay. Um, so I, I, I understand the sentiments, but that can actually be an unhelpful idea as well because the, the, those statements make us changing the final word rather than God's love. They actually put an asterisk on God's love. Putting a but on God's love is never really a good idea. God loves you, but, you know, like, oh, crap, you know, what's coming next? Um, like, if I, whenever I say to Aletha, Aletha, I love you, but, that doesn't always go over that well. Like, it's, it's a bad thing, right? It's not good. There's not good news in it. Like, God loves you, but it's not good news. So you're not going to hear those kinds of teachings here at this church, ever. Our theory of change and transformation flows more from grace. where We believe love, without condition, is what truly changes people. The Spirit of God who constantly reorients us to Jesus through the Bible, and through his people, the church. I heard someone say the other day, people only change when they no longer feel they have to change in order to be loved. And I couldn't agree more. And so we preach Jesus over and over and over again. Another angle on uh, this passage in terms of our theology, like if I was going to preach it, um, well, I'm going to preach it, but if I was like going to preach it like in a series, um, one thing I'd want to really point at is, um, well, is this idea right here. Acts 4.13 is not just about God helping unintelligent people to be intelligent or articulate or bold, but it sheds light on how we're saved from our sins. That is, not by intelligence or related things, not by being special or by work, by lots of study or even by being good, but by Jesus' blood alone. That's really what we're seeing here. It's a uh, Acts is this way, maybe you've noticed this before, Acts is not just history, it's theology. So what happens is kind of a dramatic portrayal of our lives, or not even just our lives, but it's a dramatic portrayal of Christianity, or deep Christian truths, or the gospel. It's almost like it's put on display. And so you kind of see that here, like it's the same way of thinking, to look at common people and not have a category for commonness and boldness, uh, it's the same kind of thing with, um, with uh, viewing it through the lens of how we're saved from our sins. Because the opposite of this passage would be, if you were to write out the opposite, it would be when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived they were educated, morally upright, intelligent, and unique men with tons of followers, the cream of the crop, they shrugged it off because it all made sense to them. See, so, but that's not what it says, right? But grace 
and unsensicalness or grace and this shouldn't have happened fit together. But a works-based, it's about us view uh, and sensicalness or yeah, that makes sense, they, they, they go together, if that makes sense. I kind of said that cloudily. But, but the word astonish comes with a sense of awe here. That's the point to see. The word astonish for the Jewish leaders comes with it a sense of awe. In fact, if you look it up in the dictionary, confound is a, is a synonym. They're confounded. They were frustrated. They were astonished. It came with a sense of awe, even, even the feeling that this should not have happened. But I think what grace does, it makes, it makes us look at others and ourselves and say, they should never have been saved, but they are. I should never have been saved. I have no business being a Christian, but somehow I am. If you operate on the basis of reason, on the basis of what we do with our lives, on the basis of morality, say, or on the basis of, like 1 Corinthians 1 got at, intelligence or what we bring to the table. Um, if grace isn't confounding, it's probably not grace. If grace isn't unfair, it's probably not grace. Uh, again, it reminds me, I think I said two weeks ago too, but the, for those who weren't here, the parable of the um, vineyard workers where the worker that works for eight hours gets, one, gets 30 bucks for working. The one that worked two hours also gets 30 bucks. And they're like, well, what's up? That's not fair. But, what, but basically, Jesus is, Jesus is saying, this is the kingdom. Like, your work, you know, in terms of like you, the, the payment of salvation, your work means nothing. Like, I will dole out what I want to dole out. Some you're going to work an hour, some you're going to work for, for six weeks. You both get the exact rate of pay. Now, we would say unfair, right? And we'd go to HR about it, or we'd quit, right? But in God's kingdom, this is the way it is. Like, grace doesn't make sense because it goes against every bit of reason. We are children of hell. We are children of the darkness. We have gone our own way. We are God's enemies, we deserve an eternity away from him, and yet we're not getting that result. We're not getting that outcome. We're not, we don't have that future in front of us if we're saved. It, it's, um, it's easy to just like take this for granted, right? But I mean, the fact that we're saved at all should just blow our minds every day. It's okay if it doesn't. There's grace for that too. But I'm just saying like there's room for us to grow in this and to be more like the religious rulers here, more astonished that we are saved. Just astonished. All right? So th there's grace in all of this. There's grace um, that marries itself with the image in Acts 4, with the, the word astonish, and with what the opposite would be. We talked about that as well in terms of contrast. But, um, but again, we should not have been saved because we are evil, but because Jesus became evil on the cross. He became sin to bear, to bear the weight and the brunt that we can be spared. And that's really where this is headed. I think the last layer here is um, to see Peter and John as types of Christ and also types of us. We'll talk about that here in a second. Two, there's two angles though. Jesus, I would say, if you look at his life, his ministry, you look at how he's described in the Bible, look at the prophecies about him, Jesus is the true common one. He's the true uneducated one. He's the son of a carpenter. He's of this podunk town called Nazareth that people thought no good could come from. He died, that was who he was, and he came to die an ordinary criminal's death that we might be saved. 
Um, one of the, um, one of the uh, prophecies about him in Isaiah 53 says, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. He was normal. He had nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was common. He was easy to skip over. He was despised and rejected by mankind. Jesus was a man of suffering. Jesus was familiar with pain. He was like one from whom people would hide their faces. Uh, he was despised, and, and we held him in, in low esteem. Um, so, again, these, these crossovers, these commonalities are not, are not an accident. Like, you know, Peter and John, because they're sons of the king, because they're Christians, uh, resemble this, but in an outflow kind of way. The true common one of Scripture, um, who in his weakness here was his strongest, who when he became low and bled out on a cross, showed the glory of God at the highest level and was actually somehow the strongest and in that way confounds our wisdom, he was the ultimate one. And so Peter and John are a whisper of this, this greater reality. And um, so I'm going to cheat here a little bit and go down this, with this last verse from Acts 4. So skipping down, it says, and they, when they had further threatened Peter and John, they let them go finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. So contrast this with Mark 15, 15, where, when it says, um, when Jesus is on trial, it says, Pilate, though finding no fault in Jesus, wishing to satisfy the people, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Okay, so maybe you can see the contrast here. Do you guys see it? In Acts 4, Peter and John were let go. And in Mark 15, Jesus wasn't. You actually see uh, two leader types for the sake of the people uh, either let go or not, right? So you have, uh, in Acts 4, you have, for the sake of the people, they let Peter and John go. And in Mark 15, Pilate, for the sake of the people who are demanding Christ be crucified, let Barabbas go instead and, um, and crucified Jesus. So kind of a similarity. But the point of divergence is that People like us in, in Acts 4 get to go free. And the reason why that's the case is because Mark 15 happened. The reason why that's the case is because Jesus, even though he could have freed himself, he didn't. He willingly went. And, that, and that's the gospel, that Jesus wasn't let go during his trial. He was tortured to death for you and me in love so that we can be freed and not punished. In fact, I really like that uh, phrase in Acts 4, um, second line, finding no way to punish them. And I think that's where the theology is embedded as well, is that if you're in Christ, there's no way for you to be punished. Like, if someone's seeking to punish you, I mean, ultimately, before God, whether it's the devil or a fallen angel or you um, or some other person, some enemy, there's no way to punish you because you're completely clean. You're completely exonerated. You're a child of the king. So, see how actually, like, makes a passing statement about, oh, this happened 2,000 years ago to these two dudes uh, who were arrested for preaching the gospel. It actually makes it good news for you in that the good news is no one can ever threaten you. No one can ever punish you, right? Like Romans 8.1 says there's no condemnation anymore for people who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation, no punishment because the punishment's been diverted onto Christ. He was captured and crucified that we might be be set free. That This is what grace does. On our worst days, we can affirm that. On your worst day, whatever that means as a Christian, um, your worst day, there's no way for you to be punished 
because of how much Jesus has died for you. And, and I guarantee you there'll be days where you won't believe that. You'll know it's true, but you won't feel it. And this is where the importance of coming back to it is, of taking communion, uh, coming to church, hearing the gospel wash over you. Um, a lot of times when I sing the songs we sing at church, like even today I was doing this, um, some of the songs we sing had this kind of affirmation of, um, I, I believe this, right? Or this is, I, I have this love for God or, or whatever. And sometimes I'm singing and I'm like, God, I, I believe that, but I don't feel that today. Like I don't have, I can't quite sing these words. You guys ever feel that? That's okay, actually. If you ever feel that, let them wash over you. Hear your brother or sister next to you sing it and say, they're my brother or sister. I'm one with them. Uh, we're in the same boat here, the, the, the ultimate ark, and we're being saved from the flood. And if they, if they can sing it and pronounce it over me or sing it next to me, that's enough. Maybe that's enough for today. But even just praying with the lyrics, like, God, make, help, me to, help me to feel this, not just to know it's true, but also to remember that you love me more than I'll ever love you. And that's, that's the thing that actually gives me assurance and security. Not... You must love God with all your heart, soul, mind, or strength, or be damned. Um, or start to question your faith. Or start to gauge your maturity in the faith. Or how strong of a Christian you are based on that. The Bible never says that. Never. It's something we assume because we read the Bible wrong. When Jesus comes, he qualifies things. He edits things. He puts an asterisk by things. He starts new things. And the new thing is him. The New Testament for a reason. Not old 2.0. It's new with new stipulations and rules. And again, that ultimate one is that he, his love wins the day and his love defines you. His love warms your cold heart. His love is the mediatorial thing between you and God forever, not yours. Um, it's hope, right? And so, all right, l- let, me, let me pray. And as we close in this last song, let's just try to sing those things together wherever you're at and affirm them. Uh, But God, thank you so much for this this verse um, and our story as a church. Um, I know for some people here, they're hearing a lot of that for the first time. For many of us, it's it's on repeat. But but thank you for our history. We exist by grace, uh, not because we are amazing. Uh, We didn't have a great philosophy. We didn't have a great strategy. We didn't have a great plan. Um, It was broken. But but you are great. And so we... um, We celebrate you. Thank you for your love for us, your faithfulness, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever, the Bible says, which is to also say you are the same on our bad days and our medium days and our good days. Your love doesn't change. You don't change because our behavior doesn't affect you. It doesn't change your behavior towards us. That's the New Testament. That's the new covenant, the new way. That actually wasn't true in the fullest sense of the word in the old times. Uh, But the new broke in like the dawn, and it was a better way, a better covenant that the book of Hebrews says, built on better promises. And so we, we thank you for making promises to us. Praise God that God has promised to bless us. God has promised to save us. And you can never lie. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.